Hey, thanks for inviting me here. Uh, I feel really out of place, especially because uh, the first two speakers are my friends, and I know that not only nationally, but just globally, these two men, uh, Eric Mason and J.D. Greer, are honestly some of the best teachers out there in the country, in the world. And I, I just feel out of place, except the fact that I feel... Uh, very at home in Hawaii because I have uh, a sister-in-law that lives here. We often come, and especially in Oahu, and uh, we know the places to go. The most unfamiliar place for me is Waikiki because we never come. You know, it's like all the tourist traps and stuff, so we try to avoid it. In fact, I, I love surfing. Every time I come, I, I'll go to some of the local places like tracks, and I'll surf there. And one of the best things that happened to me uh, about a couple of years back was when, I surf, was when I was surfing tracks, a dude came up to me and said, man, like that Howley over there, what the hell is he doing here? Right? I was like, dude, I just thought I got initiated by a gang or something. Right? I was like, I'm in. I'm a local, and everybody thinks I'm a local here, you know? So whenever I come to Hawaii, I feel very majority. So I love it. I just love it. And it's just almost like, you know, J.D., this is what you probably feel when you go to the mainland, you know? <laughs> I finally get a taste of the goodness. Of, you know, I, I, I love it. I love, I love your culture. I love everything here. And, and before I start just reading God's Word and studying it, I, I want to just give a shout-out to all of you pastors and leaders, I, I presume that most of you are, are serving a church in one capacity or another. You're a pastor here. And I'm grateful for you. I pray for the, the land of Hawaii. I, I pray for this, uh, uh, this state. I, 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 I long for a revival here. And then this morning I was just looking out into the ocean just praying for you and for your churches. And I, I know be, being from San Francisco Bay Area, I know the challenges that are out there against the gospel. That people say all the time, I'm like, you planted a church in San Francisco, Bay Area. I mean, it's so hard soil. And I would say equally, this place is very hard. The soil is tough. So if you are feeling tired and weary and lonely and discouraged uh, this afternoon, I, I want to bring good news to you. I, I want to encourage you. Um, I want to say, you should be tired. <laughs> you should be really tired. Um, um, because the gospel work is laying down of yourself over and over and over again for a cause that is much greater than our own. Amen? And so this is what you do, and so I'm, um, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for all the people that are hosting this great event, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. Now, I'll, I want to start by just showing you a picture here for a second. I hope we have it. So take a look at that, and I want you to just audience participation, tell me what that is. What? A meteor? <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. That, that is not only a potato, but that is actually a picture of a potato. Okay, so it's a, it's a picture of a potato. Now, I am feeling very generous today, and so I'm wondering if anybody in the crowd would buy this picture of a spud for a thousand bucks. Raise your hand. Thousand bucks. Okay, nobody. Here, the Gospel Coalition Special. All right, how about, I'm feeling very generous today, $100. Anybody? Anybody, 100 bucks? Maybe you, sir, 12-year-old. <laughs> um, anybody? Anybody? How about, how about 10 bucks? 10 bucks for a digital picture of a potato. Nobody, right? Well, you should have taken the deal because that picture was taken by a very f famous photographer, and that picture sold for $1.08 million dollars. Yeah. 
And here's the question that you're thinking right now. You're like, why in the world would you buy a picture for a million dollars? Who in the right mind would pay for such a thing like that? Well, let me ask you this question. When God looks upon you today, how do you think you look? Do you think you look better than that potato? I mean, that's a pretty handsome potato. <laughs> right? Warts and all. Right? Then why would God empty his greatest treasure on earth, in heaven to send his own son to die on behalf of your place? I mean, why would he do that? How would he view you? And the task that I have today is to help us marvel and understand in God's love for his children, in particular, his love for his children. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn to 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to study one verse today. And we'll go for about the next 45 minutes just looking and staring at this one verse. 1 John chapter 3, uh, we're going to start from just verse 1 and end in verse 1. <laughs> <laughs> As, as, as you read this, I want you to put it in this context. The author of 1 John is John himself, the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John. And right now, as he's writing this text, he's about 80 to 100 years old, estimating. And he's an old man. He's an old grandfather. He had been walking with Jesus for a long, long time because he was the youngest disciple among them all. And he was young, he was in his early 20s, so he's been walking with Jesus physically and also spiritually for about 60 to 80 years. So now he's getting old, he has shortness of breath, and of course, as people get older, your words matter more and more and more. And so in chapters 1 and 2, we don't have time to go over it, but he'll continue to challenge us and show us what are the marks of a Christian. And sometimes he's rough around the edges, he uses words like evildoers. And to challenge us. But at the same time, he has a father's love. Because he's grown and he's, he's older now. And, and he wants to shepherd his people. And in verse 2, he'll call us children. And he'll call us beloved over and over again. And in essence, when we come down to chapter 3, it's like an old man gathering all of his grandchildren over. And like, come sit, come sit, come sit around. And I love you. I am for you. And I want you to know something desperately. You see, starting from chapter 3, verse 1, he takes a deep breath. And in the midst of all these things that he's talking about, especially in light of living in darkness and light and what are marks of a Christian is, he says, see, behold, I want you to really look at this because you do not understand the magnitude of how God loves you, and it's right for him to feel this way because most of us intellectually absolutely know that God loves us, but most of us here have no idea how to feel that magnificent love, and he loves you. He really, really loves you. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so the King James Version, I, I love that version too. It says, behold, I want you to see, behold, look at the manner of love that the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called 
children of God. And for the remainder of our time, I just want to draw out three words that I believe uh, John is trying to communicate to us to help us really be rooted in this understanding of how God loves his children. That's the word behold. Secondly is father. And third, children. Behold, father, and children. That will be our outline. So first, behold. He says, behold, he wants you to see it because the entire life and work of Jesus is so that we would know how much he actually loves us. The purpose of the gospel, the purpose of everything that Jesus ever did, purpose of all that John is telling us through this book, all that he's trying to relate to us is so that you and I might experience this massive love. Not to simply know it here, but to feel it here. And let me just say it this way. If you don't today sense the Heavenly Father's love, if you don't sense the warmth of the gospel, if you don't sense a real personal relationship with him, you are frustrating the very aim and purpose of the entire career and life of Jesus Christ. Because there's nothing else that he did. There's nothing else he aimed at. There's nothing else he wanted you to know more than the fact that your father loves you. That's why 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is the theme of this uh, conference. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, everything he did was so that we could know that. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. Now imagine being the smartest person in the world. Imagine all the kind of access that you would have. Everybody would say, wait. There's the smartest man in the world. Look, he's going there. Imagine all the privileges that you will receive, all the notoriety, all the applause of the people. Imagine if you were the most athletic person in the world. I mean, not only the best in basketball and football, but in baseball and throw it in there, bowling too. What the heck? I mean, you are like the super Bo Jackson, okay? And imagine all the accesses that you have to the world. Imagine all the applause that you will receive. Imagine if you were the richest person in the world. The riches, you own islands, you own lands, you own countries. You have billions and billions and billions of dollars in your bank account. And there's no way you could spend the rest of your life spending as much as money as you possibly can. And you can't expend your own account. Imagine what kind of life that is. It's a limitless life, right? You would say, man, that, that is a life without limits. And the Bible says, and God says, but let him who boasts, boast in this. That he knows me. And he says, if you know God, if you know God this afternoon, you have a life that the wisest person, the mightiest person, and the richest person have no concept, God says. It's the affections of God, the love of God, the power of God, the satisfaction of God. Makes life of the wisest and the most athletic and the most powerful and the most richest person into rubbish. There's nothing compared to this life of knowing God and knowing his love for us. I have a 12-year-old son, a pretty smart kid. But when he was 10 years old, we were throwing a party at our church, and all of his friends are bouncing on the moon bouncer, and he was sitting in the curb. So, you know, I just went next to him. And he's a pensive kid. He, he always looks like he's thinking of something, or he has gas or something, you know. <laughs> so I, I just came and sat next to him. I'm like, son, how come you're not playing the moon bouncer? What's going on? 
He goes, Dad, I have a question. I'm like, yeah, go for it. He's like, Dad, what is the greatest temptation of man? <laughs> now, pro tip, ready, pro tip. I'm a pastor. I mean, you know, I'm a theology hack, okay? But when you don't know an answer to a question, you flip it. And you, so I said, son, what do you think is the temptation of man? He said, dad, I think it's money, power, and fame. I'm like, okay, go with that. What do you mean? He goes, dad, you know, people with money are powerful, and that's a great temptation. But you know what? I have more than money. I am a child of Christ. And he says, I'm the heir of his kingdom. I'm like, wow. <laughs> All right. And he goes, Dad, and I'm powerful too. There are many powerful people in this world, but they do not have power to live eternally, but I do because I'm a child of Christ. And he goes, I'm famous too, you know. LeBron James's kid, he's famous because of his daddy, because he's the king, but I am the child of the king of all kings. And you said, I said, you are correct. <laughs> Good job. You are absolutely right. Good job. And I was feeling proud. I was like, yes, when did daddy teach you this? He's like, you didn't. <laughs> I was like, my Sunday school teacher taught me. And I was like, all right. Now listen, this kid, a 10-year-old, just beholding the father and gaining all this identity from this gospel centrality, this idea that his father loves him, that because he's a child of God, that he has this great fame, he has this great wealth, he has this great power, and he gets to fellowship him forever and ever and ever. And the question is, as adults here today, do you know that? Are you beholding that? Are you beholding this marvelous, amazing gift and our sight being illuminated by the gospel, the fact that we could see God. I mean, no blind person ever woke up opening their eyes and said, I did it. <laughs> I did it. You see, now I could see. No, every blind person that I've ever saw again, they said, wow, something healed me. Something healed me. And if you could see God today, God illuminated your sight. He gave you his heart. You see, I, the gospel-centered people are all monergists. They're not synergists. Like, you don't take participation points from God when he opens his eyes to you. You only know God because God allowed him to be known. And for us to say, to know that is to say, thank you, God. Thank you for opening up my eyes. Behold, then. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. But here's the second, the Father father what kind of father is God well the scripture tells us over and over and over again that he's both holy and loving at the same time now at first glance it, it seems so contradictory it's a paradox of source but the idea of a holy God and a loving God is all over the scriptures and this juxtaposition is just simply amazing for instance in Mark chapter 14 verse 36 Jesus says this Abba father all things are possible for you so please remove this cup from me. Okay, the word Abba in Aramaic is, is daddy, daddy, daddy. It's an intimate word, and Jesus calls his Abba father daddy. Now, in my household, my kids call me by two names, uh, daddy to my youngest, and the older one calls me, and he's transitioned into dad. And maybe he's going to transition into, oh, father, maybe, some, someday. <laughs> 
but right now it's like those two things, right? And then, you know, I, I love dad, but I love uh, daddy because there's a dependency, there's an intimacy, there's a sweetness, there's a coming under of source. Now, how does Jesus know his father? As, as daddy. He says, Abba, father. And yet he says, at the same breath, he says, This cup is for my father. You gave me this cup. Take it from me. So in essence, Jesus is saying, my daddy, my loving, intimate daddy is send, sending me to the execution chamber. My daddy. Now, how do you reconcile the two? Well, let me add color to this, okay? Exodus 33, Moses comes to God and says, show me your glory. That's a Nacho Libre reference, but anyway. Um, <laughs> show I'll say it, show me your glory. And Moses says, in essence, God, show me who you are. Show me what makes you, you. And so God says something really interesting. He says, I will show you all of my glory. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. That's what he says, right? Interestingly, Moses didn't ask for his goodness to be shown. He says, show me who are you. Who are you? Tell me the gut of you. And he says, I'll show you my goodness. And then in Exodus 34, he says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, did you catch that? Did you see the juxtaposition of the, he said, I'm a merciful one, I'm kind, and I'm generous, and I'm forgiving, and I'm loving, and I'm tender, and all this, because, but there's no way a single person in this world will ever, ever be excused of any wrongdoing, is what he says. Now, how, do you see that the first clause actually contradicts the second clause of this verse? How does that happen? I mean, how could you in one hand say that you're forgiving and at the other hand say he can never let the guilty go unpunished? Well, here's the answer. God says, because I am not just good, I'm all good. He says, I'm all good. And this is how it breaks down. Most people say, especially in our area, you know, I believe in a loving God, and a loving God, though, would never send anybody to hell, what they would say. They would say, you know, I cannot wrap my mind around the idea that God would be both loving and holy and just. Yet at the same time, if we've experienced personally some serious injustice in our life, you believe that God, a good God, doesn't just love and accept everybody, but a good God judges rightly, and he never lets injustice just slide. He would never do that. And you would really only know if you were the recipient of this grave injustice to your life. And I've experienced something, not directly myself, but right near, very close to my life. When I was in college, my dad got laid off in a job and decided to just go into the swap meet business, selling women's purses. Now, he wasn't very good at this. And so we didn't, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. But right across the store, across from us, just a few feet, was, was a Hispanic family that we really loved. And they had three little children, husband and wife, running a stereo store. And we got close. And the only reason why I want to hang out on Saturdays is not to sell women's purses, but to, to hang out with my friend. Well, one day while I was in college, Dad called me and said, 
Letty, and the three children, they all died. That they were all slaughtered by their crazy neighbor. And the only survivor was the dad. And this struck me so hard. I was so broken. It was months and months until the next time that I got to see my friend. And when I saw him, he was a broken man. And he would mutter things under his lips. He would say, under his voice, he would say, all I want is justice. All I want is for this man to feel the pain that I have to experience every single day for the rest of my life. Now, think about this. So let's say you were the recipient of this kind of injustice to your life. One thing that you cannot understand then is a forgiving God who would actually forgive this kind of injustice. Now imagine a judge and imagine this judge saying to my friend, hey, listen, I'm a loving and accepting judge. So you know what? Why don't we just let this guy go and say, oopsie, he made a mistake. He made a lapse in judgment. And so we're going to let him go. There's no way that my friend would look at that judge and say, you know what? He goes into society just absolutely free because the judge is a good and accepting and loving judge. No way. That would never happen. Because a good judge will not allow injustice, I mean justice to fail. Not a single one. And if you forgive injustice... It's unfair to the victim and also to the society, right? Therefore, the reason God says, I can never let a single, single sin go unpunished is because he says, I am all good. On the other hand, he says, I will forgive you and redeem you because I do not want you to perish. Now, here's the question. Where does this put us? Where does this put us? Do you see the problem here? This is a huge problem for us, not just for society, but for you and I. This is, this is very significant. When we think about the gospel, we can't just theorize the gospel. We can't theologize the gospel only. We can't intellectualize the gospel. What we need to do then is we need to personalize the gospel. So I want to ask you the question again. What does this mean to you then? Do you see the problem here? Do you see all just God? having to punish all sins, and yet he wants to save you and he does not want to see you perish? Do you see the vex that he's in? Do you see the problem here? How could he be all holy and all loving at the same time? He cannot let a single sin go unpunished, and yet if he doesn't, then you and I will be separated from him forever. How does this work? How does this work? Well, I'll explain it to you this way. You know, I know you can't tell now, but I used to be an athlete in high school. And I used to love playing all these different kinds of sports. And I lettered in a bunch of sports, and one of them was track, and I was a runner. And some of my favorite friends, uh, closest friends, were in, in, uh, in track to get together with me. One day I saved about 100 bucks in my pocket, and I said, you know what, I'm going to take all my friends out. So I said, all my friends, there were seven of them. All right, so all my friends, you seven close guys, hey, like, let me buy you dinner. I got it. You know, I saved up money, and we're going to go anywhere, wherever you guys want to go. You know, Subway, <laughs> McDonald's, Quiznos, wherever, whatever, you know. And they said, well, let's go down to this restaurant, a new restaurant. It happened to be a Moroccan restaurant. I had no idea what a Moroccan restaurant was. So we sat down. There are no tables at all. You sit on the ground. And there are, like, tables about that tall. And you just sit there, and they're belly dancers. We're like, ooh, we're high school. You know, we're like, ooh, 
this is awesome. Like, this is crazy. And we're just like, and, and, and we ordered the chef's special. And so we got this thing, and five courses of meal came over and over and over. And belly dancer food, belly dancer food. And it was just like marvelous. It was the best day of my life. You know, it was just like, wow, this is incredible. It was a great spread, and we were so full. And right when the bill came, I'm like, boys, I got this. I got this. And I opened that thing and realized it wasn't $100. It was $120 per person. (laughs) So, eight times, eight, 120, I'll do the math, 960, I'm Asian, so I got this. All right, so, uh, so, tax and tip, 1,200 bucks, and I'm like, Boys, we're short. <laughs> we're short. They're like, how short? We're like, about $1,100 short. And they're like, what are we going to do? They're like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm having Asian guilt. I'm sweating. I'm about to cry. I don't know what to do. I'm a good little boy. I'm like, I don't know what to do, what to do. And then one of my friends is like, hey, we're track stars. Let's run for it. They can't catch us. I was like, I'm ready to go. I didn't know what to do. And the, the owner of the restaurant comes like, fellas, could I help you? Honestly, all my Asian guilt just poured out at that moment. I started crying. I started, sorry, sir. And I'm like, sorry, I, I'm a little short and we're, we, we can't pay. He's like, how short are you? About $1,100 short. And, he, and, he, and he's like, wait here. And he goes back. I was like, okay, we're dead. Okay. He could either call the police or he, worse, he could call my mama. And that's, that's going to be awful. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm cooked. And he comes back. And he comes back with like this stack of flyers. He said, hey, by the way, fellas, uh, today's dinner was free. It's free. It's all me. Thank you for coming. By the way, we're a new restaurant, so could you do me a favor and pass these flyers out maybe to the neighborhood? That'd be really, I'd be so grateful if you were to do that. And honestly, I, I started instinctively start bowing. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> I started just bowing. I'm like, out of there. I just went, before he changed his mind, I was like, out of there. I'm like, amazing. You know, uh, 10 years after that event, I ended up going to visit, like, my old high school again. And sadly, that restaurant is gone. It was gone. And it was then I realized that there's, when there's forgiveness, someone always pays. Someone always pays. And in this case, the owner did, Right? And in the same way, when God forgives me, there's always a cost. Someone has to pay, and it wasn't me. And here's one of the chief problems of Christians. Just because we didn't have to pay, we assumed that there wasn't a cost. Listen, forgiveness was free to you, but it wasn't free to God. It was not free to God. It cost his son. And I'm tired of Christians saying, oh, I have this little sin or identifying little sin. Your little tiny sin in your life costs Jesus his life. There's no little sin in you. Each one of your sin, every single one, costs God his son. Each one Christ had to die for. The late Chuck Colson once told this great story about visiting a prison in the city of Brazil. It was quite of a remarkable prison. Two Christian laymen were running it. The book says they called it Humeda, 
and their plan was to run it on Christian principles. The prison had only two full-time staff, and the rest of the work is all done by inmates. Every prisoner is assigned another inmate to whom he is accountable. In addition, every prisoner is assigned a volunteer family from the outside that works with him during his term and after his release. Every prisoner joins a chapel program or else takes a course in character development. Well, Chuck Colson says, when I visited the prison, I found the inmates smiling, right? Particularly the murderer who held the keys, (laughs) opened the gates, and let me in. Wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living areas. I saw people working industriously. The walls were decorated with biblical sayings from Psalms and Proverbs. The prison had an astonishing record. Its recidivism rate, which was only 4%, that, that rate is guys who actually go out of prison to, only to come back, right? 4% compared to 75% in the rest of Brazil and the United States. Well, how is that possible? Colson says, I saw the answer when my guide escorted me to the notorious punishment cell once used for torture. Today, he told me, the cell only houses one inmate. As we reached the end of a long concrete door, he put the keys into the lock and he paused and asked, are you sure you want to go in? Colson said, of course. I've been in isolation cells all over the world. And slowly he swung open this massive door, and I saw the prisoner in that punishment cell, a crucifix beautifully carved by the prison's inmates, the prisoner Jesus, hanging on the cross. And this fellow said to Colson, he's doing time for the rest of us. He's doing time for the rest of us. God punished Jesus as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, even though he did not commit a single sin. You see, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had your li- lived your life so that he could treat now you as if you had lived his life. This is the core of the gospel. This is what the Father does. On the cross, both holiness and God's love is fully displayed. That's our Father. He is both holy and loving. So behold the manner of love that has been bestowed upon us. Behold that this Father is holy, just, and yet absolutely loving. Now the third word is then children in this verse. John wants us to know because of what Christ has done, we are his children. Verse 1 again, see Behold, look at what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Do you know that in the Roman Greco world, often when a wealthy person had no children, he then had the opportunity to adopt. And when you adopt a kid, then you would actually go and pay all the debt that the child had. And once that debt is fully paid, then what comes to you is a certificate. And finally, the status comes as son. You cannot have that status unless you pay your entire debt. So you and I have this amazing status as daughters and and sons and yet this verse actually gets better it says verse one see what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called the children of god and that is what we are 
Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, you are not just called the children of God. I don't just call you sons and I don't call you daughters. It's not a title. It's not just a status. I'm absolutely hoping and longing that you will not only know the status, but you will feel the status of your sonship, that you will feel the status of my daughtership to you, that you will feel this, that you'll be grounded in this. God longs for us to not just cerebrally know that we're children of God, but he wants us to feel it. But here's the problem, you see. We have the status of sons and daughters, but we still live like slaves. Yeah, we do. All throughout Romans, it just gives us a clear picture of, are you a son of Adam? Are you still a slave? Are you a child of God? Did Christ pay for you over and over and over again? Henry Nouwen wrote this fascinating book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And there he points out something really marvelous. He takes us back to Luke 15, you know, and he sees the son coming back after just living a horrendous life, spending all of his dad's earnings, all of his dad's inheritance. He comes back to his father, and he's repenting, and he says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just let me live in the estates as one of your hired servants. And what Henry Nouwen is saying is at first, at first glance, we will see this and see this is saturated by humility because don't be fooled. This is not humility. This is not humility at all. In fact, this son is displaying great insecurity, grand insecurity that stems from not believing the unconditional love of the Father. You see? So now one says that many Christians go through much of our lives with this, what he calls the prodigal suspicion. Does my daddy love me? Does my daddy, will he receive me? Can he embrace me? Can he call me sons again, or am I going to hang out with the servants of the home? You see, prodigal suspicion, you and I. And this prodigal suspicion uh, gives us off a lot of lies. And here are two prominent lies that we continue to believe. Lie number one is this. God's not so loving that he only loves some of me, not all of me. Uh, He's not so loving that he only loves some of me, not all of me. Now, when, when you see the prodigal son, I mean, come back to his father... I mean, he knew, he screwed up before, but this time he really, really, really screwed up, right? Real bad. So he thinks, you know what? My father will never love me the way he used to love me. Therefore, I will ask him to let me live as a servant. You see, at first, that seems so humble and that seems so contrite. But it's a lack of faith in the father's love to redeem him after such a fall. See, he doesn't believe that the father is gracious and loving enough and and. This is an insult to our God. This is an insult to his fatherness. This is an insult to his grace. This is the insult to the fully, full justification of Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. This is an insult to it is finished. Because when Jesus said that, he says it is finished. All the condemnation is done. That's why Romans 5.20 says, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Amen? What great news that we cannot outpace his grace. 
that we can never overwhelm God with our sin if he doesn't overwhelm us back with his grace that is greater and more effectual, more loving, more awesome, more powerful than any sin that we've ever committed. You see, that's the lie. You and I continue to believe that. Well, God doesn't love all of me. Here's the second lie, that God's not so loving that I need to work to earn his favor. I need to work for it. The first is error, and this is earning. That if I work hard, I'll prove to him that I'm worthy, that maybe he'll grant me the honor to go back into the major estate where he lives, and maybe I'll get out of the servant quarters, and maybe I get to hang out with him once again. If I'm really faithful, Now, you might think that's silly, but you and I are constantly guilty of this kind of thinking, aren't we? You know, in my earlier years of Christ, I mean, following Christ, you know, I I received Jesus in my senior year in college. I never knew anything about the Bible. Nobody was a Christian in my home, and nobody taught me the Bible. And, like, it was first, like, just finally climbing, reading the Bible. I didn't understand a thing uh, of the Bible. I just didn't know anything. And, And I just figured that God would love me if I just, you know, did more righteous things. And that he would give me favor when I do good things. And so, you know, um, I liked a girl. And I thought, you know, God is sovereign. He's in control. And so, you know what, I think I'll start reading my Bible. And I started reading my Bible. I started feeding the homeless. And here's my thought. I thought, if I'm moral enough, if I'm devoted enough, if I pray enough, then God will see me as worthy. And maybe then he would zap that girl. (laughs) (laughs) and that he would cast a spell (laughs) to make her love me. (laughs) That's what I thought, okay? Well, you're thinking, well, that's silly. Well, really? Is that all that silly? Because you and I do this stuff all the time. You're like, well, if I come to church enough, if I read my Bible daily, if I live a moral life, then maybe God will put me in a position where I will receive his blessing that I want so badly. I'm mean, thinking about the last interview or the last, you know, resume that you wrote for somebody you wanted the job. Man, wasn't that the most holiest day in your life? <laughs> right? You did your Bible. You even sang a song out of tune. Who cares? You did all that stuff. And that is a clear indication that you and I still live with the prodigal suspicion. We do. We do. I still do. There's a marvelous verse in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that's us, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters, of course. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that's the Holy Spirit. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, quickly, this is, this is I'm running out of time here. But quickly, um, it's telling us two things. First, because we tend to believe in these lies, God sends the Holy Spirit to help us to know that we are sons and daughters. So that we could feel the sonship and the daughtership. So that we would cry out, Abba, Daddy. Father, the Holy Spirit gives you the sense of intimacy and assurance of that. But second, it tells us that we have this immense freedom from earning sonship and daughtership because it says Jesus paid it all. 
Do you know that Christianity is the only religion of all the religions in the world that grants you the possibility of absolute assurance of your adoption? You know that it's the only religion. Do you know why? Because every other religion says this, you're saved by your life. You see, people in our culture, here in the Bay Area, in North Carolina, wherever you are, they say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe, you know? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what ritual, what church. It doesn't matter what God. All that matters is how you live. Now, you've heard this. I hear it all the time. All that matters is whether, you live, uh, whether you're a good person or not, whether you're a moral person or a good guy or a gal, you know? It's how you live. And if so, you're saying that you're essentially saved by your life. You see? Therefore, you can never be certain. You can never be sure you're saved until the end of your life, right? After all, all the evidence is not in, right? Who knows? When you're old, you'll go postal, you know? Hey, all the evidence is not in, so you'll never know. You'll never know at the end of your life. You'll never know. You can never know. But Christianity is the only religion that says you're saved by not your life, but somebody else's life. And because it's somebody else's life, you could absolutely know, though we were under the law, God sent his son to fulfill that law for us. So Christianity is the only religion that says you're saved by his life. Therefore, you and I could be assured today 100%, 100% that we are in God's family in spite of your efforts, in spite of your errors. So let me ask you a very important question as we close. This is very important. Do you know this afternoon that you are absolutely certain that you're part of his family? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt Do you deeply have the certainty in your heart and in your mind that you're his child today? Remember, Christianity is the only religion of all the religions in the world that could grant you the possibility of this absolute assurance of where you stand with God. But do you have that? Do you have that? Even with all your flaws, even with all your current struggles, even with all your sins, Some of you right now are going through a season right now that you can't remember another season in your life thinking, wow, I'm just a real wrecked sinner. Some of you are living life uh, with a bunch of secrets. You have deep secrets. You have deep regrets in your life right now. You're sitting here. You're hearing the gospel. You'll come under the teachings of these great pastors and also guys like me. But, you know, that you'll you'll come under and and you'll, you'll listen You'll posture, and yet deep inside you know all of your secret sins. And you're like, I could never voice them out in a community like this because I'll never be respected ever again. You know, I'll never be viewed the same again. And if God is sovereign and all-knowing, and he knows the depth of my sin every single day, I mean, he knows me so intimately as to know right now how many hair strands are on my skull. If he knows that, if he knows every single sin, there's no way I could absolutely be sure that I'm part of his family. Right? Some of you are there. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I want to share it with you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. And I hope this will be a devotion to you that you will marvel at this reality 
It says, for he, Jesus, who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Anybody who's sanctified, you have one source. That's Jesus and the cross. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, this is incredible. This is an incredible verse. Now, in the Western individualistic culture, we tend to promote ourselves. If we're going to promote ourselves, you know, um, we write up something that is called a resume, right? What is the content of the resume? You're trying to promote yourself. You're saying, I deserve this. You're saying, I'm of this stature. And all the things that you put on your resume is what you accomplished, not what your mom accomplished. You can't put on a resume, my mom is an awesome mom. That doesn't do anything for you. You know why? Because we live in a very individualistic culture, and somehow our decisions and our maturity, who we are today, is independent from our upbringing and our family and all that stuff. So when you're writing a resume today, you're writing all of your accomplishments, all the things that you're good at, all the things that, you know, that might be an asset to that company or organization. But in other cultures, in particular Eastern cultures, they're more a bit more realistic as to how you become the person that you are now, they realize that um, you and I are not um, only basically a product of our uh, decisions and choices. You see, to a great degree, you and I are a product of who we are today because of the family that we're part of, because of our mommies and daddies and the way they influence us. And so we are more of a product of our family than we like to admit, for good and the bad, right? We have some really great things about that. We have really terrible things about that. Well, in the ancient times, when you wanted to recommend yourself, uh, you never wrote up a personal resume. You know what you did instead? Uh, You wrote out a genealogy. Because they knew essentially that you are a byproduct, not so much of your personal individual decisions, but the family that you came from. So your resume would read like, I'm the son of this daddy. And I have an uncle that does this and an auntie that does this. And you would write all the aristocrats and all the noble people and all the famous people and the the biggest fishermen, the biggest builder, the biggest carpenter, whatever. You're just writing all the the best soldier, whatever, you know. You're writing all these things. It's just genealogy. That's what you would present to show the world that you are this great person. And, of course, you have that crazy uncle that drinks too much, right? So you're like, nope, scratch that out. You know, you have that auntie that got divorced. You're like, nope, I can't put that. And so you put all the great things that you've ever done, okay? All the family lineage that you're absolutely proud of, all the noble ones, right? So you leave out the people that you're not proud of, and you put in all the people that you're absolutely proud of. Now, this is incredible because in the book of Matthew, especially chapter 1, This is a time to recommend, right? We're experiencing silent years. Now he's going to recommend Jesus to the world. And so it starts out with the genealogy, this long list of genealogy. Do you know who's in this genealogy? This is Jesus' resume. Look who's there. First of all, there's women in the genealogy, which is mind-blowing. Okay? Do you know that in the Roman genealogies, you never put a woman there because of their low status? They would never put a, low, I mean, a woman in there because in the Greco-Roman world, they would not even validate a woman to testify in the courts because they weren't high status enough. Okay, so that's a problem, right? But interestingly, not only did women make the genealogy of Jesus, not only that, look at the kind of women. Tamar, 
the incestuous prostitute, but Bathsheba, the adulteress, Rahab, the, the prostitute, and Mary, the unwed single mom. Right? By moral standards, these are people that you absolutely be, should be ashamed of, right? But Jesus proudly, he proudly gives them this place of honor in his own genealogy, in his own lineage. He puts them on there, the genealogy of the king of this universe. And do you know what that means? Do you know what it means for Jesus to not be ashamed of us? This is what it means. This day, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what sin. Some of you in this room are believing because you are doing what you're doing today that maybe you're out of fellowship with the Father, that you lost your sonship, that you lost your daughtership. You might have lost that fellowship and that connection, but God will never disown you. He will ne- His grip towards you is much stronger than your grip to let go. Do you see? In this verse, in Hebrews 2, Jesus says, because I include these people, certainly you make it too. Certainly you make it too. So Jesus says, I'm not ashamed of you. He says, I sing over you. I sing over you in the congregation. Could you believe that? He walks the halls and he's just singing of your name. He sings of you. He welcomes you. He massively loves you and so does the Father. And the only way that you will realize the love of God to his children is number one, you must beg the Holy Spirit to reveal this to you. You must beg, beg and beg, Holy Spirit, would you help me to see the depth and the love of God towards me and my life? And secondly, you must behold to the manner of love that God loves you, to the degree of love. You must stare at the gospel every single day of your life until you convince your heart and your mind that God does love me like this. I do belong in the family, and I absolutely have the assurance that he loves me because he does. Let's pray. Father, there are, I believe, are people in this room that are unfamiliar with the feeling of sonship and daughtership. You seem so far away to us. But that's why we're here. We must know, we must behold the manner of love of how you love us to the degree to which you love us that you are a proud daddy, a daddy that sings over us, a daddy that comforts us, a daddy that is intimate over us. So Father, we ask the Holy Spirit to do the work, to reveal in us, to give us the sight, to regain perhaps the sight to see who you are the kind of love that we're bestowed by you. Will you awaken us? 
will you bring about a revival first in our hearts so that we could anticipate a greater gospel revival to take over these lands? We pray that revival will come and it will start by us knowing deeply and personally how much you love us. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.